0: morning everybody all right so we are if you weren't here last week we started a new series we're going through the book of Genesis um, and we looked at chapter one and the first few verses of chapter two and we're going to actually zero in a little bit this week on chapter 126 to 23 um, because of how important that is so Uh, To follow along in the Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's pretty easy to find. Genesis, you know, first book, page one. Um, So one and two. But I think you can find that without any trouble. Uh, One quick thing I would say is that the notes, I changed something here. So point number two, why in the bulletin, if you're following along, you just scratch that one. Um, I'll kind of weave that one into point number one, Uh, but point number two is more so going to be the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God, so just for what that's worth, um, so you don't get confused when we get there. All right, so Genesis is the story of the origin of everything, origin of the universe, and so uh, This is what we teach our kids about why we're here, where we came from, what our purpose is, who made us, who we are, all those huge important questions, okay? So we have our bedtime story, right? But what about the atheists? What do they read to their kids before bed? And I don't mean to be trite here or poke fun, But I think this is important to think about the implications of what we believe. Okay, so Joe Carter, who writes a lot for the Gospel Coalition, he took it upon himself to actually write a bedtime story for the children of atheists, tongue in cheek. So you got to track with me here. Okay, so here's what he says: Throughout history, people have been awed and thrilled by retellings of their culture's creation story. So the Aztecs would tell of the Lady of the Skirt of Snakes, and the Phoenicians about I can't even pronounce that word, so I'll skip it. Um, He says, but there's one unfortunate group, the children of atheistic materialists, that has no creation myth to call its own. When an inquisitive tyke asks who created the sun, the animals, and mankind, their materialist parents can give the answer that famed astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, you know him, died not long ago, brilliant guy. um, He claimed in his book, The Grand Design, that the universe created itself from nothing. So, one of the great intellects of science, there's there's your creation story. The universe created itself from nothing. So, in light of that, here's Joe Carter's um, creation myth for atheists. In the beginning was nothing, and nothing created everything. When nothing decided to create everything, she filled a tiny dot with time, chance, and everything, and had it expand. The expansion spread everything into everywhere, carrying time and chance to keep it company. The three stretched out together, leaving bits of themselves wherever they went. One of those places was the planet Earth. For no particular reason, time and chance took a liking to this little wet blue rock and decided to stick around to see what adventures they might have. While the the pair found the earth to be intriguing and pretty, they also found it a bit too quiet, too static. They fixed upon an idea to change everything just a little by creating a special something. Time and chance roamed the planet, splashing through the oceans and sloshing through the mud in search of materials. But though they looked everywhere, there was a missing ingredient they needed in order to make a something that could create more of the same somethings. They called to their friend everything to help. Since everything had been everywhere, she would no no doubt be able to find the missing ingredient, and indeed she did. Hidden away in a small alcove called somewhere, everything found what time and chance had needed all along. Information. Everything put information on a piece of ice and rock that happened to be passing by the former planet Pluto and sent it back to her friends on Earth. Now that they had information, time and chance were finally able to create a self-replicating something they called life. Once they created life, they found that it was not only that it not only grew into more somethings, but began, began, began to become other things, too. The somethings and the other things began to fill the earth from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the sky. Their creation, which began as a single something, eventually became millions and billions of other things. Time and chance and everything then put their creative skills to work on a new creature called human and began to boast about who could create an ability, which they called consciousness, that would allow human to be aware of chance, time, everything, and nothing. So these humans, where did they get their beliefs? Well, here's your answer. Time rushed around, filling the gooey matter inside each man's head with consciousness. But as he was gloating over his victory, he noticed a strange reaction. When man saw that everything had been created by time, chance, and nothing, his consciousness filled with despair. Chance immediately saw a solution to the problem and took the remaining materials she was using to make consciousness to create beliefs. When Chance mixed beliefs into the gray goo, man stopped filling with despair and started creating illusions. These illusions took various forms, God, purpose, meaning, and were almost always effective in preventing man from filling up with despair. Nothing who tended to be rather forgetful remembered her creation and decided to take a look around everything when she saw what time and chance had done on planet earth she was mildly amused but forbade them to fill any more creatures with consciousness or beliefs which is why man is the only something that has both but nothing took a fancy to man and told time and chance that when each one's life ran out she would take him or her and make them into nothing too and that is why children when man loses his life He goes from being a something created by time and chance into becoming like his creator. Nothing. Good night. Sleep tight. So, everybody's got to wrestle with these ultimate origin questions. And, hey, we don't want just a spiritual placebo pill. Hey, it makes us feel better to think there's actually a personal God. The point is, If there is a personal God, then it changes everything. If there's not, then, yeah, we're just a bunch of random goo. So have fun trying to create your own meaning. But we know that's not the case. We know that we live in God's world, and he created us for relationship with himself. That's the story of this earth. Everything in it. Everything in the entire universe created by a single, super intelligent, sovereignly powerful, perfectly loving, and gracious being. So last week as we began our study in Genesis, we looked at all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 and kind of summarized it with this sentence. In the beginning, God created by his sovereign word. He just said it, and it was. By his sovereign word, he ordered the chaos, and he filled the emptiness... And it was very good. So just think about this. Like all of what you look at every day, when we look up into the night sky, all of this universe is shouting out the glory of God. The story of human history is more revelation of the character of God. I love this this quote by a guy named Derek Kidner. He's a commentator On Genesis, he says, the creation story has stood as a bulwark against a succession of fashionable errors polytheism, dualism, the eternity of matter, the evil of matter, astrology, and not least against every tendency to empty human history of meaning. It resists this nihilism explicitly in displaying man as God's image and regent, like ruler under God, but also in presenting the tremendous acts of creation as a mere curtain raiser to the drama that slowly unfolds throughout the length of the Bible. The prologue is over in a page. There are a thousand to follow. So think about what's going on in creation. Everything is made, chapter one. God speaks it all into existence. That gets one page. And then there's a thousand pages of God's interaction with us, his special creation made in his image. So he displays his glory in powerfully creating all things, but the real story is in his relationship with us. And he reveals his glory that much more in the story, the big story, of creation and redemption and renewal. So just think about it. This universe, yeah, when we see the skies, we see the rain, we see the grass, we see the trees, it's all shouting out God's glory. But the story of human history, God's grand plan of redemption, is really where the glory's at. In fact, the radiating epicenter of the revelation of the glory of God is in the life and death of a Middle Eastern Jewish peasant carpenter. So we're either crazy <laughs> or this is the most wild, wonderful story you could ever imagine. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, so we're going to zoom in, like I said, chapter 1, 26. So the big number is the chapter, little number, the verses. So chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 3. And really, we're going to see two things, what it means to be made in the image of God and what it means that God rested on the seventh day, instituting the Sabbath, okay? So that's where we're headed, image of God and rest. So first off, image of God, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, mankind. Male and female, he created them. So again, last week, in the beginning, God, by his sovereign word, Ordered the chaos, filled the emptiness, and it was very good. So consider this in light of the creation of our first parents. Ordering and filling, and it was very good. So remember, it was formless and void, and then God speaks, and he orders that chaos, and he fills the emptiness. So here, he's doing it again with us. God ordered by creating separate beings— male and female, distinct and unique in their own right as male and female, and then united them as mankind, so we're equal in essence, different in function, but both bearing the image of God. So order actually came through diversity and unity, difference and equality, okay, So separate as male and female. And their separateness was part of God's order and God's glory. United as mankind. They alone of all creation bearing the image of God. So they are over all of the animals. They combine as one flesh in sexual union in order to fill the earth with the glory of God. So they unite to reproduce and fill the emptiness. So that ordering actually accomplishes the filling. Okay, so order and fill. And it was very good. So, now our main question, like I said this morning, is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So we're going to consider it under three categories, and actually I found these in the ESV Study Bible, a great little summary of what the image of God means. So rule, relationship, and resemblances. Okay, we're going to take them one at a time. So first, rule. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, Let us make man, mankind, humankind, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now look down at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Over, You see how rule is in view here. So here's some background that's important. In the ancient Near East, it was common for kings to call themselves the image of God, the image of their God. So different kingdoms, you know, worship different gods. They had all these pagan gods everywhere. So they would, let's let's take um, Babylon or Assyria, And the king would say that he was the image of God. He's the representation of of Marduk or whoever. And what they would do is they'd make little images of that king and they would spread them out through the kingdom. Okay? So, what that amounted to is those images were a reminder in every place, in this village, in that region, in that province that this whole area is this king's kingdom, okay? It's under his rule. So God's people were not allowed to do this with their kings, okay? They were to make no carved images, right? Ten Commandments have no graven images, carved images. No gods before God. Because he had already made his images, you and me. We are his images. So the meaning is clear. This world is God's domain. We are the images of the true king. And we're supposed to multiply and fill the earth, displaying the fact that he is the king of kings over all the earth, representing his kingship. Okay, So we human beings, by our very existence in God's image, whether we know it or like it, We say that this is God's world, the Creator God's world, His domain, the place of His rule. And amazingly, we are called to rule and subdue in His stead, on His behalf, as His vice regents. Okay, Tyler read from Psalm 8: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, I mean, to think that the sun is just an average star and there are stars that would fill up the orbit of Jupiter and there are billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy and there's billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each one. Like, he's so big and so great and we are so small so, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, it's just God's finger work, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This is our ruling function. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. So, we're actually created to rule. In God's stead. And let me just make sure that I point out, like Captain Obvious here, you know, point out what's obvious. This rule was given, is given, to both male and female. Verse 26, let us make mankind and let them have dominion. Verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue and have dominion. So being made in the image of God means that we're called to exercise a benevolent rule, just like God's, as his representatives. Okay? So do you know what this is a call to? This is a call to science, actually, and technology so that we can use wisely the resources that God's given us so that we can bless and serve the world. That's his. So dominion wasn't originally to be associated with selfish, selfish exploitation. That came in as a result of the fall. God gave us this authority as his image bearers to be loving stewards of what he had made and what he had given us. So we were intended originally to rule like God. Benevolent rulers, giving and blessing and caring for the creatures, the creation, and each other. So exploitation as a result of the fall. We'll consider that in weeks to come. So this gives dignity and purpose to all of our work. We're fulfilling our calling as human beings made in God's image, whether it's motherhood and ordering the home and filling empty shelves with food. (laughs) That is fulfilling your creation calling. Or if you're a trash collector, that's awesome. You are fulfilling the creation mandate, bringing order to the chaos. If you manage water and sewage systems, if you are involved in law and order. Now, I know all these things can be abused, you know, Detroit and drinking water. And look, look how it is a curse upon people. But if you do your job well, it's a blessing. Crooked cops, good cops. You know, court systems can be just a messy tangle or it can be a blessing to serve and protect. So on and on and on. We could multiply examples. But the image of God in us means rule, dependent dominion, as a friend of mine, Scott Hafeman, calls it. So it means rule. It also means relationship. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So why the plural? Our image. After our, like, who's talking? Listen to Alan Ross, a commentator. I think he summarizes it well. This verb harmonizes with the plural God, Elohim is plural, like a plural of majesty, used in verse 1 and following, which although plural in form takes a singular verb, these plurals do not explicitly refer to the triunity of God, but do allow for that doctrine's development through the process of progressive revelation. So when Moses is penning this, he didn't know yet fully see that God was God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Spirit was already hovering over the waters, and built in from the very beginning is the, the kind of categories, the language to then further fill out and explain as God reveals himself through redemptive history and ultimately in his son, Jesus. Okay? So God is creating us, and he says, let us make man in our image because God is a trinity this triune society. There's relationship in the God, like in God's character, in who he is. So we see in creation that the singular man, humankind, is actually a plurality, male and female, and that reflects God's nature. So there's one God, but in three persons. So the singular God is actually a plurality, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we as human beings made man, one species, you could say, one kind of being in God's image, but in plurality, male and female. So I I think it's particularly important for us here in our cultural moment to camp out a little bit on verse 27. You see the parallel in those two lines. In the image of God, he created him, that's mankind. Male and female, he created them. Okay, there's a lot of confusion in our day. I don't think I need to convince any of you of that, but we need to think about this. We need to think Christianly about male and female, especially in our day and age. So male and female were necessary for mankind to be created in God's image. So this says something about God's relational nature, obviously, within the Trinity. It also says that this diversity of male and female was necessary to reflect, fully reflect the image of God. So later in chapter 2, we hear that before the fall, God made Adam, everything was good, good, very good, right? But it was not good for Adam to be alone. So it was necessary for God to create male and female for his image to be reflected, his nature to be reflected. Okay? In these, the complementary relationships of marriage and family and community that are lived out as we live out our maleness and our femaleness, okay? So human beings were created in the image of God, male and female. You and I were created male or female in the image of God. So your biological sex matters immensely. I don't think we think about this enough. It used to be that sex, biological sex, and gender were interchangeable terms, ways to refer to your maleness or your femaleness. Somewhere along the way, your sex referred to your biological maleness or femaleness, and gender began to refer to a socially constructed way in which you live out your maleness or femaleness. And yes, there's a degree to which gender is socially constructed, but it's more like the fine adjustment on a lens, not the coarse adjustment. If you can go back to, like, high school science and that, you know, Microscope, you know, the coarse adjustment, the fine adjustment. So masculinity and femininity certainly differs from culture to culture and historical moment to historical moment, but the fact remains that male and female are fundamentally different. So the problem is that in our day, gender has become as moldable as Plato, and now we're starting to treat biological sex the same way. Are you tracking with me? Like, you guys read the news? Okay. So listen to these two things that our culture says. It says your biological sex is not that big of a deal. So male or female doesn't really matter. It's an immaterial difference, which is why bisexualism and transgenderism are becoming normalized. Second thing our culture says is that your sexual desires are a really big deal they're at the core of your identity, in fact, they say. They're like God determining who you are. The Bible says something very different. What the Bible says is that your biological sex is a really big deal because it's determined by God, and it's given to you as a gift, and it's actually a calling and responsibility from him to you. And then the Bible says that your sexual desires are not an ultimate big deal. They are a big deal, but they're not God. They're fallen and bent. We're all sexual sinners in here. So our sexual desires actually need to be shaped and governed by God. They are not God. God is God. And so our sexual desires are not who we are at the core. Exhibit A, Jesus. The Son of God, Word made flesh, was biologically sexed as a male, which is, has really profound implications I want to get into this morning. And he never had sex. He was the most human, human being. He was the most fully human being. And listen to, I'm going to quote several times from Rosaria Butterfield and a guy named Todd Wilson, who actually is a friend of mine. Um, He's a pastor out in Chicago, and he wrote a book called Mere Sexuality. There's a whole chapter on the sexuality of Jesus. It's really a great chapter. So I'm going to go back and forth quoting these guys here. I think it's important. So here's Todd Wilson first. One of the most important truths we should reflect on is this. No one was more fully human or sexually contented than Jesus, yet Jesus never engaged in a single sexual act. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex, an erotic touch, or a lingering kiss, and he never indulged sexual fantasy or lust of the kind he roundly condemns, even though Scripture says that Jesus is the one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Sadly, in our hypersexualized contemporary culture, it's almost inconceivable that someone could be sexually chaste, even celibate, and experience the fullness of what it means to be human and the peace of sexual contentment. Our culture is such that sexual activity is viewed as the most direct path to personal fulfillment and self-realization, to being truly human and alive. So deep-seated is this belief that most people today think that to deny yourself sexual experiences is to undermine your own humanity. So Rosaria Butterfield wisely asks, Is personhood determined by sexual desires or by being made in God's image, male or female, with inherent ethical and moral responsibilities, constraints, and blessings? She goes on to say this, Today, to refuse to both accept and approve of those who identify as LGBTQ, etc., is to deny their rights to determine for themselves what personhood means. This brings us to the epicenter of the worldview divide. Whose image do we bear? The image of God or the reflection of our sexual autonomy? And then she says this as a helpful qualify here. Unbelievers need to see genuine acceptance from us, not necessarily approval, But genuine acceptance from us, they need to see genuine love. They need to see that being made in the image of God is a higher calling, bestowing a greater dignity than inventing your own rules for faith and life. But again, that acceptance doesn't lead to approval. We must resist the idea that love and approval go hand in hand. Parents who love their children decidedly do not approve of everything they do. So, this could be maybe out there. You could just think, what are you saying? Should we just point the finger at all those you know, nasty homosexuals and, and transgender people out there, and we're going to just kind of come in here and, and circle the wagons? And no, 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 not at all. We're all sexually broken, right? Remember? So there's actually sexual renewal and wholeness available to all of us through Jesus the only power for it. But what we need to show the world is not just what's right, but also what's good. Good, 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 very good. So we all, we we can point the finger at people that are, you know, have propaganda with homosexuality or transgenderism and, and, you know, whatever else but we need to look in and say have i embraced how god has made me it's so easy to resent to call into question god's goodness like if we're going to actually show the world the goodness of god's design we're going to have to embrace it and by his grace live it out in a beautiful way so that our lives don't undermine the truth that we profess. So if we speak with kind of this shrill, you know, bigoted, critical, you know, nasty, if we, if we strike that tone, the world's not going to listen. But if, as the sexual revolution continues and so much brokenness and mess continues to just proliferate, if the church continues to listen, not to you know, the most recent fad, but instead to the ancient word and wisdom, good, good, very good, God knows what he's doing. We just might become a beautiful counterculture, like beautiful countercultural maleness and manhood and masculinity, beautiful countercultural femaleness, femininity, beautiful Marriages and families. Not perfect, but authentic and beautiful and displaying the good, good, very good nature of God's wise design. So listen to Todd Wilson again here. When God created you, this is for each of us to look in and, and consider this. When God created you in his image as male or female, he called you to a certain way of life as either a male or a female. You have a call on your life. It is your most basic vocation, your most fundamental job in life, to joyfully embrace and faithfully embody your sexuality, whether male or female, for the good for the good of others. God's first call on our lives is to acknowledge rather than deny our sexuality. We are to rejoice in it rather than seek to downplay it. We are to lean into it fully, rather than avoid it entirely. We are to use our sexuality to bless others rather than neglect it to the loss of others. And we are to embrace its limits rather than try to transcend it. There's always the temptation to depart from God's call in our lives as either male or female, to downplay or even deviate from who God has made us to be. Tragic things happen when we begin to despise our own sexuality and the bodies God has given us. So let me just give you one example. Let's make this a little bit more practical. What do you think of male passivity? How much trouble is there in this world because of passive males that won't, like, take responsibility? So guess what? I remember resisting the call to responsibility. I, I wanted my mom to make the call. Would you call the Mom? Like as a teenage boy. See, I, was, I had this inclination to abdicate. And so for some young men, it's an inclination to passivity. For other young men, it's, a, it's an inclination to domination. Those are both distortions of the image. So we actually need to lean in to the image, how we were made, and embrace it. You see what I'm getting at here? So I didn't fight passivity early on It was the opposite of me leaning into my sexuality fully rather than avoiding it entirely. Some of you may have wished that you were born a woman or a man, and maybe not because you are thinking of transitioning or something like that, but for a host of reasons. Listen, this is a faith issue. It's a who will be Lord issue. So we need to learn to lean into our sexuality and learn what it means and embrace it in faith and battle against our tendencies to downplay or despise or avoid or reject what God has given us, what he's made us to be. So that by his grace, he can reshape us and we can show the world, the generations that follow us, that God's design is good. So let me just give you a little taste, a little glimpse of what this looks like. There's a guy named um, Jay Budziszewski who has written, um, written stuff for college students to help them face some of the challenges they face in college, and he wrote a book called On the Meaning of Sex. And he said, A wise father teaches his wife and family that in order to love, you must be strong. A wise mother teaches her husband and family that in order to be strong, you must love. She knows that even boldness needs humility. He knows that even humility needs to be bold. He is an animate symbol to his children that of that justice which is tempered by mercy. She is a living emblem of that mercy which is tempered by justice. Each of them refracts a different hue from the glowing light of royalty. A wise father knows when to say ask your mother, A wise mother when to say, ask your father. When they do this, they are not passing the buck, but sharing sovereignty. Now, sometimes they actually might be passing the buck, but in the best case, they're sharing sovereignty. So again, being made in God's image means leaning in to how God has made us and embracing that and wrestling with how that image has been twisted and distorted, where we have to battle against that, so that we can reflect God's good design in our identity, who I am, in our relationships, whether that be marriage or friendship or parent-child, child-parent. So, being made in God's image means rule, dependent dominion, right? Representing the sovereign and loving king of the universe. It means relationship, being male and female in his image, a relationship with him and with each other. Healthy dynamics there, beautiful dynamics. And finally, it means resemblance. So this is kind of the typical list that you get when you start to think of how we differ from the animals or the rest of creation. So what does it mean to be, li- be made in God's image? Well, we resemble him. So we can't resemble certain attributes of God, his omnipresence, his infinitude, his omnipotence. We can't resemble that, we can't reflect that. But we can reflect his reason, his moral ethical sensitivities. We have a conscience. We communicate in a way that's different from the animals, language, memory, conscience. Creativity in all of its, like all kinds of art forms, is a reflection of God's character. So we are not to make images because God has already done so, so that we, his images, might reflect his glory just like the moons reflect the light of the sun. And then, being fruitful, we will fill the earth with his glory. Look at verse 28. So, God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, you know, I mentioned some of this in more detail last week, but Genesis is unique among ancient Near Eastern kind of creation stories because the gods of other religions oftentimes created human beings to do their dirty work or even to kind of feed the gods, you know, through sacrifices. But here in verse 28, the first, like the story of the true God, he doesn't need anything. He gives everything. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. I'm blessing you. I'm giving you everything you need. Every plant is yours. And he's generous and um, he's a giver. So in the scope of the big story of God's, Redeeming love, sadly, this blessing here in verse 28 is followed in chapter 3 with a curse. So after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, there's a curse, a curse that falls on the world. There's all kinds of implications and fallout from it. But the problem is we deserve the curse. Okay, so Voltaire said, God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. We, we want to shape God into our, you know, to kind of form and fit our own likings. We want, we want to use him like a tool. We want him to be like a genie in the lamp. We like these characteristics and not these characteristics. Like, loving God is good, but wrath, no. Justice, no. Mercy, yes. And we end up becoming the center of the universe, or at least we try to. We try to shape God in our own image. So, we deserve condemnation as a result of it. Listen to this illustration by J.D. Greer. He said, When God appeared to Moses, he declared, I am who I am. I am who I am is not I am whoever you want me to be. Can you imagine how offensive it must be to God when we attempt to reshape him according to our preferences? How would you like it if someone did that to you? Suppose a writer approached you and said, I've been watching you, and I'd really like to write your biography. I want other people to know how wonderful you are. But then their biography presents you as an astronaut with a string of failed relationships who lives alone with 18 cats, none of which are true. So you say to your biography, uh, there's a problem. First, I'm scared of heights. Astronaut thing. It's not going to work. Second, I'm not that bad at relationships. And third, like all godly people, I prefer dogs to cats. (laughs) That's J.D. Greer offending you cat lovers, not me. Um, So they respond... Oh, but you're so much more interesting as the spurned, cat-loving astronaut. People will only buy the book if you're like that. You can connect the dots, right? My guess is that you'd be offended if we wouldn't like someone else doing that to us. Why would we think that our idea of God is better than who he actually is? Have we forgotten who we are talking about? So God made us in his image. We've returned the favor because we want to be the center. We want to be the one who determines reality, what's good, what's bad. So how does God respond? Rather than cursing us forever to hell, God pours out his mercy. So through the Old Testament, these covenants of grace and mercy with their promises of blessing. But again, people of God kept turning away, turning away, and so finally, Jesus comes and takes our curse for us so that we could be blessed. So think about it. Big picture story. In the beginning, God created us in his image. Because of sin, the image is shattered like a mirror getting broken. The image is distorted, right? So then Jesus comes who's the image of the invisible God, the perfect reflection of God. And he takes the curse for us so that we can be remade once again into his image to reflect God's glory so that we can once again actually exercise benevolent dominion. So remember the disciples, they're like, hey, we want to be first in your kingdom. And Jesus said, oh, no, 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 not in my kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be great in my kingdom, be the servant of all. It's okay to want to be great. And you should exercise your authority for the good of those around you, but that's exactly the point. You do it to serve. You're exercising benevolent dominion. Our image, we're we're reshaped into the image of Christ so that we can love others the way that he has loved us. We love because he first loved us. We were made for relationship. Reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. Reconciled to each other So it means rule. It means relationship. And then once again, by the power of the gospel, we can resemble God's glorious character. Jesus was the light of the world when he came. And when we understand the gospel and all God's done for us, we become the light of the world. We begin to shine with his light. So we start to become forgiving, gracious people because of how gracious God has been to us. We start to tell the truth because God has told us the truth, given us the truth. Jesus is the truth. And on and on. So we begin to reflect God's glory, his infinite worth through Christ for the good of other people and the glory of his name. So there's lots of implications of being made in God's image. Like I said um, Instead of the why part, we've already kind of talked about that. I want us to just consider briefly here some implications of what it means to be made in God's image. It means it's wrong to murder. So James 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God is the giver and taker of life. We can't usurp his role. God is the avenger, not us. So the reason why murder is such a heinous crime is because it is killing the image of God. It's actually the same thing when we curse other people. Remember James 3? With these tongues that are hard to tame, impossible to tame, with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So the image of God should shape our speech. It has implications for the care of the unborn image-bearers. It has implications for the care of those with genetic abnormalities. Okay, they have dignity and worth and value because they're made in God's image. It has implications for the care for the elderly. I appreciated this word by a guy named Daniel Darling. read it this past week. I wonder if we've imbibed too much of our culture's pragmatic utilitarianism that discards people when they are no longer at peak usefulness. Care of parents, particularly in the latter years, is difficult, grueling, and offers little tangible reward. The elderly seem like speed bumps on the road to relevance. But if we really believe each human life was made in the image of God, if we really believe that every human has intrinsic worth, regardless of utility, we'd do better at embodying this ethic when it comes to equipping our people to care for their elderly parents. So we're made in God's image. We need to lean into this and all of its implications. And then finally, let's look at 129 to 23 and, and God at rest. So God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. See, he's the giver. He doesn't create humans to serve him or to feed him. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. So that, that word translated rested is more about him ceasing from labor than it is about relaxing due to tiredness. God didn't rest because he was worn out. He's omnipotent. He spoke these things into existence. This is the rest of achievement, not the rest of tiredness. It's because it was finished. So what is this whole Sabbath principle that ends up getting fleshed out? Remember, this is in the beginning, God. This is the book of origins. This is the origin of us as human beings, but also the origin of the Sabbath pattern. So what does that mean? Just consider it briefly here and then we'll be done. So for God, the Sabbath means that the provision is complete and sufficient and it's finished. What the Sabbath means for his people is that his provision is finished. It's complete. It's sufficient. We can trust him. So do you remember with the manna in the wilderness, why were they not supposed to go out on Saturday to collect more manna? It's because God was going to take care of them. You go out on Friday, I'll give you two days' worth, and then don't go out on Saturday. Trust me, you're going to survive. So it was really ugly. It's like a vote of no confidence for them to go out looking for manna on Saturday because I just don't know if you're going to provide for me. I don't know if I can trust you. So, the rest of the Sabbath is about receiving God's good gifts, resting in them, acknowledging that they are enough and sufficient and then God blessed that he made it holy setting this day apart because yeah, like we can set this day apart in a special way just like Every day is God's. This is a particularly special day set apart for God so that we can recognize how rich His provisions are so that we trust in Him. We don't live for our own selfish pleasure, but we live for His holy purposes because we belong to Him. So we can rest in His provision and His work. We receive this day as a gift and set it apart unto Him. So... Israelites really struggled to learn that lesson, and then Jesus comes along and says something like this. He says, come, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Do you know what he's saying? Is you're restless. You're restless because of all kinds of things. You're restless because of your guilt and your sin, but here Jesus died, and he rose again with the ultimate provision we can trust him the ultimate provision to save us so you see the pattern starts in genesis and it goes all the way through and jesus is the fulfillment of that pattern he is our sabbath rest so it is finished we trust him and we don't have to scramble anymore to try to prove ourselves to god we can rest in christ Our guilt is taken away. Our sin is forgiven. It's cleansed. And then, you know what heaven is described as? The final rest. Talk about perfect, full provision. Everything, everywhere, everyone will be good, 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 very good. Because of God's grace, for God's glory, we will rest for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't live in a cold, impersonal world that just evolved out of primordial soup that is pointless and purposeless ultimately, that we came from nothing and returned to nothing. Thank you that we came from you, that you made us in your image with such dignity and purpose. And even though we've spurned you, You so mercifully sent Your Son to remake us into Your image so that we can once again reflect Your glory. So Lord, help us to lean into these things and wrestle with them and embrace Your good design and not be blown and tossed by the winds of our present cultural moment. And I pray that we would be a beautiful, Attractive, compelling counterculture. Because we do embody your good, good, very good design. All by the grace of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.